0: Good morning. We are so thankful for everyone's presence here today. We have a beautiful day uh, to come together and worship our God. And if you're visiting with us, we're really glad that you're here. Um, We had a baptism this past week. Johnny Payne was baptized into Christ. Johnny is Maxine's husband. And so if you see Johnny, be sure to shake his hand and uh, congratulate him on uh, being baptized into Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of his sins. We are thrilled for him, happy for Maxine and that family, so be sure to congratulate him. We're so thankful for the uh, presence of our Franklin County High School football team. Some of, our, some of their players are here with us today, and we're just really glad you're here. And you cannot leave until you eat, because there, there's tons of food. I've been told there is just an abundance of food. There was a time in my life when it would have made me nervous to speak before a a room, a crowd, including several football players, uh, because I was in the band. I was a band nerd. And I remember there was a time, it was actually in middle school, at Red Bank Middle School, I was walking up a flight of stairs with my trumpet case, and uh, I missed one of the stairs and I fell. I fell. I fell going up the flight of stairs, and there was this kid. I don't know if he was a football player or not, but he was walking up beside me, and he stopped to laugh at me, to laugh at my misfortune. So he was pointing and laughing, and it made me so mad, you know, that he was making fun of me. So he went on, and uh, I caught up to him in my anger, and I rammed my trumpet case in the back of his knee, caused him to lose his balance, and then I scurried off. And so the moral of that story is don't mess with me. That's the lesson, okay? Don't mess with a band nerd. We've all heard it say you never get a second chance to make a first impression. Have you ever made a really bad, really lousy first impression? I heard a story about a girl in college, and she was always late to her calculus class in the morning. She would oversleep, and so then she would just go to class wearing whatever she slept in the night before, a a ratty T-shirt, her pajama pants. She did this throughout the semester. Well, there was one afternoon when she was feeling really homesick, and she thought, I'm going to go visit my friend. Maybe my friend can cheer me up. So she went to her friend's dorm, and in the lobby she ran into this guy. And uh, she was really embarrassed about the way that she was dressed Because she thought, you know, he was kind of cute, kind of hot, whatever, whatever you want to say. And so she went up to him and she said, you know, I don't normally look like this. And he said, yeah, you do. I have calculus with you every morning. You always look like that. Lousy first impression, bad first impression. Maybe you've made one in your life. Maybe you can think of a time when you, know, you were really embarrassed about you know, that first impression you made on somebody. Maybe somebody you were actually trying to impress. There's a first impression we get of a young man in the Scriptures that is really bad, really lousy. I mean, way worse than the illustration that I just gave. Way worse than any bad first impression you've ever made. This young man first appears in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 7. And he appears at a really tragic, violent scene. He appears at the scene of a stoning. The stoning of a man who was a committed Christian. And he was being stoned because he proclaimed Christ. His name was Stephen. An early leader in the Christian church in Jerusalem. And the Jewish leaders and others, they had had quite enough of Stephen's preaching the gospel. And they put him on trial uh, and they... Sentenced him to death by stoning. They drug him out of the city and stoned him to death. And there was a young man who was there. And the scripture tells us that he approved of Stephen's execution. And in fact, he said, if you're picking up a stone to throw at this guy in order to kill him, just lay your coat at my feet. I'll take care of your outer garments while you're you're taking care of putting this guy to death. His name is Saul. And we continue to read about him in Acts chapter 8. In fact, we read in the first few verses of that chapter that there was a great persecution that rose up against the Christians in the city of Jerusalem. And Saul was instrumental in this persecution. Saul was a chief persecutor of the early Christians. And as a result of this, many of those Christians, in fact, we we see here every Christian except the Apostles run out of town they had to go out to the the uh, surrounding area of judea and samaria they had to leave the place where it all began the place outside of which jesus was crucified and the place outside of which he came back to life the place where the holy spirit came in a mighty way on the day of pentecost and peter preached that powerful sermon and three thousand souls came to christ all of that happened in jerusalem it all began in jerusalem but as a result of this persecution and the Christians being treated so poorly and so violently they are scattered and Paul uh, Saul excuse me had a lot to do with that. We read here that Saul was ravaging the church verse 3. What about that what about that verb ravaging the church? Seeking to destroy the church and we read that he was going house to house Dragging off men and women and throwing them in prison. Saul said, we've got to lock these Christians up. I've had enough. So what's our first impression of this young man named Saul? Well, this is the profile of a villain. He is a persecutor of the church. He's an enemy of God. He's no better than King Herod who planned to kill all the newborn male children in order to kill the Christ child when he came along. Herod, who orchestrated this infanticide back when Jesus was born. He's no better than Pilate, who gave in to the chance, crucify him, crucify him of the crowd. And he turned over a criminal in order to send Jesus to the cross. Pilate, the governor, the Roman governor. He's no better than Herod. No better than Pilate. He's no better than those cold-blooded killers. Those terrorists who last week walked into churches on Easter Sunday in Sri Lanka and blew themselves up and killed over 300 worshipers. Saul is no better than any of those guys. Saul consents to the stoning of a Christian leader. Saul is seeking to destroy Christianity, the very faith. Saul is dragging men and women away from their children and locking them up in prison just because they confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And the Bible is not yet done with this extremely bad, extremely unflattering, extremely lousy first impression of this guy named Saul. We read a little bit later in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Threats and murder. Threatening them saying he's going to kill him he went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at damascus a city just right up the road so that if he found any belonging to the way capital w that's what they called the christian faith in those days the way men or women he might bring them bound to jerusalem so what the scripture is saying here is that saul got permission from the high priest in order to go to damascus he doesn't want the persecution to stop in jerusalem he wants to To spread out even further, he wants to go to Damascus and drag off anyone who confesses Christ back to Jerusalem to throw them behind bars. That's all. That's the picture that we get of this man. However, we are about to learn that this, all of this, all that I have just described is the before picture. Because there's an astounding after that's right around the corner. What's your before picture? I doubt it's like Saul's before picture. But just to be clear, we all have a before. Sinful rebellion is our default condition. Yes, we were made in the image of God at the very beginning of time. Yes, we were created to dwell in a perfect relationship with God, but our earliest human ancestors, Adam and Eve, ruined all that. They cast all of humanity into a cycle of rebellion that continues today. And every time we sin, we are a part of this rebellion. That is our, now our default condition. If you live long enough in this world, you are a sinner. And according to the New Testament, places like Ephesians chapter 2, sin brings about separation from God. A sinful life is one that's characterized by distance from God. You are living without God if you're living in sin. And sin eventually brings about death. Eternal destruction and death. That's our before. That's everyone's before. What is your before? What characterizes your before? Is your before characterized by out of control anger, by a quick temper, a short fuse? You are just one second away from flying off your handle, blowing up on somebody? Is your before characterized by sexual immorality, by the use of pornography, by sleeping around with multiple partners, by having sex in a relationship before marriage? Is your before pride and arrogance? Is your before a crude or profane way of speaking? Your speech is just characterized by filthiness and unwholesomeness. Is your before all about lies and deception? You find it hard to tell the truth about anything? You feel like you're always covering something up? Is your before rudeness and hatefulness? You just don't treat other people in a respectful, kind way? Is your before characterized by drunkenness? By the abuse of alcohol or drugs? Addiction? Is that your before? Is your before moral weakness and wishy-washiness? You never take a stand for anything? You never stand up for the truth of God's Word? Is that your before? You know, Saul's before is extreme, but everything is about to change. Because in Acts chapter 9, we've, we left off with Saul traveling from Jerusalem to Damascus, and on his way, he hears a voice, and he sees a light coming down from heaven, shining all about him, and the voice says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who is this? And the voice says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The people who are traveling with with Saul are speechless. They don't know what's going on. And Saul rises from the ground, and even though his eyes are open, he cannot see a thing. People take him by the hand and lead him into Damascus, and for three days he remains there without sight, and he neither eats nor drinks. So Saul has a vision of Jesus on the road. And Jesus says, why are you treating me so poorly? Why are you persecuting my people? And he strikes him blind. And for three days, Saul, in the city of Damascus, where he was heading to round up Christians, is blind and he fasts. He has nothing to eat, nothing to drink. And then God tells a Christian named Ananias a Christian in Damascus, to go and minister to Saul. Why? Ananias wants to know. Because God says, Saul is my chosen instrument. Isn't that something? Why in the world would God choose a man like Saul? His sworn enemy. A persecutor of his people. Someone who is treating Christians, the church, violently. Throwing people in prison. God says to Ananias, don't question me on this. I am sending you to Saul. I know what you've heard about him. It's all true. But listen to me. He is my chosen instrument. I have picked him to preach the gospel to Gentiles, to kings, to all of Israel, to everybody. I want him to. This man who has been my enemy to be one of the greatest proclaimers of the gospel that the world, that history has ever seen. And that is precisely what Saul becomes. Ananias goes to him. He lays his hands on him. Saul is baptized. He receives the Holy Spirit. Something like scales fall from his eyes. He can see again, but it's not just that he can see again physically. He can see the world As God made it to be, he has clear spiritual vision and he begins gaining strength and he begins preaching the gospel. And Saul, better known as Paul, and I let that slip already a couple times, (laughs) better known as Paul, he becomes a fearless follower of Jesus Christ. One of the greatest evangelists that the church has ever known, planting churches all over the known world until his dying breath. He becomes one who cannot help but proclaim the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that changed his life. And he becomes the author of the majority of the books that we have in our New Testament. But this is how it all started for him. Before he was Paul, the preacher. He was Saul, the persecutor. But... Once Paul passes from before to after, from old to new, from darkness to light, from rebellion to relationship, listen to this, God does not hold his past against him. And this is the big message of the sermon today that I want to leave with you. Here it is. It doesn't matter who you were. It matters who you are. It doesn't matter what your past looks like. It doesn't matter who you were. It matters what your present looks like, who you are. Listen, earlier I said we are all by default in a sinful condition and we must be delivered from this sinful condition in order to share a relationship with God, in order to receive eternal life and other blessings from God. Well, here's what God did to make that happen. We read in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, which was in fact written, By Saul, by Paul, he writes, God chose His love for us in that while we were yet still sinners, He sent Christ to die for us. Before we could prove our worthiness to God through various deeds and actions, while we were stuck in the mire of our iniquity and sinfulness, God sent His Son to die on the cross for us. Before we were even... A little bit obedient. God acting on our behalf. It's not obey me and then I'll love you. That's not how the gospel works. It's God saying I love you. Here's how you can know I love you. And now obey me. God sends his son for us while we were yet still sinners. And Paul elsewhere says in 2 Corinthians. In Christ. God is reconciling the word to himself. Not counting people's sins against them anymore. No longer regarding them according to their sins. God is bringing himself back into a relationship with his people through Christ. No longer counting their sins against them. Through Jesus Christ, God removes our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. To God, it doesn't matter who you were. It matters who you are. His name is Racindo Granald Sr., but most everyone knows him as Big Sarge. He lives in the country of Panama, and he served in that country's navy for several years. He sailed all of the territorial waters of Panama. Big Sarge is a large and imposing man, towering above most others at six foot eight inches. For his final duty assignment, he was appointed as a personal bodyguard of General Manuel Noriega, who was the last dictator of Panama. Noriega was a ruthless leader, as many of you probably remember, and his right-hand man, Big Sarge, was just as ruthless, carrying out much of Noriega's dirty work. In 1989, the U.S. invaded Panama and removed Noriega from power. Thankfully, Big Sarge Retired from his military service only 20 days before the invasion. He retired because he had obeyed the gospel. Because he had become a Christian. Because he had been baptized into Jesus Christ. I met Big Sarge in the summer of 2005 on a mission trip to Panama. And by that time, he'd been working with the organization Latin American Missions for around 15 years. He told me that when he worked under General Noriega, people would often call him Gato Feroz. Excuse my Spanish. That means fierce cat. But he said, now that I'm a Christian, people call me Gato Suave, which means gentle cat. He's helped plant numerous churches in Panama. He's converted hundreds, including his wife, many of his children, and several, several other family members. What a dramatic before and after. Nearly as dramatic as Saul's before and after. And it's all because of Jesus Christ. You'd never know that before Christ got a hold of him, this man worked for a brutal dictator. But it's not his past that matters. It's his present. It doesn't matter who you were. It matters who you are. We live in a world today where a lot of folks say people can't change. Nobody can change. You're basically just stuck the way that you are. We live in a cynical world where people say no matter what you do, no matter how many times you help somebody, that person is never going to change. We Christians have got to stand out in the midst of this world and say, no, people can change. Our faith demands that we believe that people can change because the Bible is littered with stories of people who changed. And we really should reword this. It's not that people can change. It's that God can change people. God can change a person who struggles with anger, who who is always blowing up, who has a short fuse, a quick temper. He can make such a person into a peace seeker and a peacemaker. God can change a person who struggles with pornography use, who sleeps around, who's had sex before marriage into someone who embraces sexual purity. God can change somebody who struggles with pride and arrogance into somebody who's humble and meekness. God can change somebody with a foul mouth who has a habit of of a profane way of speaking into someone who speaks words that are wholesome and that are edifying and encouraging. God can change somebody who's addicted to lies and deception into an honest, truth-telling person. God can change somebody who's just rude and hateful and ugly into someone who's kind and gentle and loving. And God can even change somebody who's addicted to drugs, who's addicted to alcohol, into someone who is sober, who is And who is free of the enslavement and the shackles of addiction that binds so many in our culture today. People can change. God can change people. And it doesn't matter what your past looks like. It doesn't matter who you were. It matters what your present looks like. It matters who you are. But you know, after Paul's turnaround, after Saul was suddenly different after he made that about face, that 180. Some people had trouble believing that he really changed. Sometimes we have trouble believing that people can really change. They had trouble believing that Saul was really different. Ananias, I mentioned him earlier. God wants to use Ananias to declare the gospel to Saul. But you know what Ananias says when God says, hey, go to Saul? Ananias says, Lord, I've heard from many about this guy, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. God, are you kidding? You want me as a professing Christian to go to this persecutor of the church and talk to him? Have you not heard what he's been up to in Jerusalem? God says, yes, I've heard. But everything's about to change. Because this man, this Saul, this persecutor of my people, I have chosen him as my instrument to spread the gospel. And Ananias comes around. Well, in Damascus, over the course of a few days, Saul is up there, Paul is up there. And everybody who began to hear him declare the gospel, they began to say, isn't this the guy who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon the name of Christ? And hasn't he come here for this purpose? To bring them bound before the chief priests? Isn't this the same guy who was breathing threats and murder against the church who was trying to throw Christians into jail who has come to our town for the very same purpose? Isn't isn't this the same guy? Yes. Well, yes and no. It's still Saul. It's Paul. But he's totally different now. He's totally different. He's made an about face And as they continued hearing him proclaim the gospel, they became convinced. And then when Saul gets back to Jerusalem, where it all began, where the Christian faith began, where Saul's persecutions began, when he gets back, don't you know they doubted him? And do you blame them? Do you blame them for for being a little bit afraid of this guy who had treated Christians so violently, We see in Acts chapter 9, verse 26, that when he had come back to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. Hey guys, hey, I'm one of y'all now. Let me in. Open the church doors for me. And they were very reluctant, very apprehensive. They were afraid, Scripture says, for they didn't believe that he was a disciple. But, this this is Acts 9, verse 27. Important verses here. But Barnabas. Barnabas An early Christian in Jerusalem took Saul and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And they listened to Barnabas. And Saul was able to come in and out boldly proclaiming the name of Jesus. They didn't believe him. They were scared of him. Enter Barnabas. Barnabas takes Saul, he escorts him into the presence of the disciples and he vouches for him. He goes to bat for him. He says, I know what he used to be like, but he ain't like that anymore. He's different now. Don't treat him as the person he was. Treat him as the person he's become by God's grace. And the church needs more Barnabases. More people who escort folks into the midst of the disciples and say, I know that you know about this person's past, but they have been washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we're no longer thinking about their past. We're no longer regarding them according to past iniquities. We are treating them as the person that God has made them to be by His grace. If someone has come with a penitent heart and they've turned away from their sins and they've been baptized into Jesus Christ or if they have been baptized long ago but they've they've gone astray but they've repented and they've come back, how dare we hold their past against them? How dare we hold their sins over their head? How dare we treat them, regard them according to past mistakes and sins? If we're doing that, then we're not doing it right. We're not doing it as the early church did it. We're not doing church as the New Testament instructs. The Bible tells us that it doesn't matter who you were. What matters is who you are. And you might want to say, well, you know, Saul's before was way worse than mine. I mean, I've never been involved in stuff like that. I mean, you know, he was basically a terrorist. He was hunting Christians down in in order to throw them in jail, and he consented and approved of the murder of Christians. I've never been involved in stuff like that. We, We love to do that, don't we? We love to rationalize and justify our own sins. We love to compare ourselves to others and say, at least I'm not that bad. But the problem with that is others are not the standard of comparison. God is. And lined up next to a holy, perfect, righteous God, we all fall woefully short. No matter what kind of sin we've been involved in. Let, let's get some things straight here. Let's level the playing field. We all sin. According to Romans chapter 3, verse 23, everybody sins and falls short of the glory of God. And no matter what your sin might be, no matter what's in your past, whether it's as extreme as what was in Saul's past, or if you think it's not quite as extreme, you are a sinner and your sin separates you from God. We are all in the same boat. We need to remember that. We are all stuck in our iniquities until God comes and pulls us up out of the swamp. We've all made a lousy first impression with God. But aren't you glad? That he doesn't hold that lousy, bad first impression against us. That he was willing to send Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. And if we confess faith in him, if we're baptized into his name, then we come up out of those waters a new person. And we should treat one another, fellow Christians, as new people. Not as old people. We all need Jesus. Every last one of us needs Jesus, and that's why we're here. We're not here because we're perfect. We're not here because we're holier than thou, we're we're more righteous. We're here because we've acknowledged that we're sinners, and we can't go a day without the blood of Jesus cleansing us from our sins. We can't go a minute and not need God's grace to cover over us. We're here because we are, are declaring by our presence we've got to have Jesus. We cannot do without Jesus. We cannot go a day without Jesus. We need Him. And He's the one who creates for us a more glorious present than our ugly past. And when He does that, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who we were. What matters is who we are. In 2013... Justin Seiko, who was a senior publicist at the internet company IAC, he made a terrible joke on Twitter before he left on a plane for Africa. It was a vile, racist tweet, and I'm not going to read it. By the time the plane landed, he was no longer employed by his company. But it didn't end there. The internet gleefully and brutally tore this guy apart over this tweet. He was publicly shamed, which is something that's been a part of culture since culture has been around, but it's been amplified by the Internet. And I'm not excusing his tweet. It was terrible. It was vile. It was offensive. And discipline was necessary. Maybe he should have lost his job. But this story illustrates to me that in our culture, you are often defined by the worst thing that you've ever done. This one terrible mistake is now what defines him. It's what people know about him. We live in a very unforgiving culture. You know, what happens when someone decides they're going to run for office? Something called opposition research. The other candidates start digging up all kinds of dirt, Every. Everything negative they can find from this person's past and they dredge it up and they throw it on the news and it doesn't matter if the person's been apologizing for it for years. It doesn't matter if they've said over and over again, I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I hadn't said it doesn't matter. We still hold their past against them. We live in an unforgiving culture, but in the midst of this unforgiving culture, God wants there to be a peculiar people who say, listen, you are not defined by the worst thing that you ever did but by the best thing that's ever been done for you. By the best thing that God has ever done for anyone. The best thing that God has ever done for everyone. He gave His only begotten Son to live on this earth as our perfect example and to die an excruciating death on the cross for our sins. You are not defined by your greatest regret, but by your great Redeemer. And of course, this peculiar people that I'm talking about, it's Christians. It's supposed to be us. We are those who are called to say, it doesn't matter who you were. What matters is who you are. Every Sunday, every time we get together, we we offer what's called an invitation. And we sing a song. And we encourage people to come before the church, before the assembly, with any spiritual need they may have. And so maybe you're sitting in the house today and you've been made new. In the past, you've confessed Christ. You've repented of your sins. You have been washed by those baptismal waters and your sins have been removed from you, but you can't quite forget the old. You can't quite forgive yourself for the old you can't believe that god would be able to forgive you even though you've put that behind you it, it lingers well today what i want to say to you is what god has said in his word and that is he no longer deals with us according to our sins if you're in christ he no longer deals with you according to your sins so Maybe you need to come and say, I can't quite let this go. It's in my past. I need the prayers of my brothers and sisters. I need the prayers of the church to help me let it go. To assure me that God has forgiven me. To assure me that my Christian friends have put it in their rearview mirror. Or maybe you've been made new, but you're still dabbling in the old. You've been brought to newness of life, but there's some oldness that you're still dragging around with you. There are some old habits, some old attitudes, some old thoughts and actions that are clinging to you and you need to say this morning, I'm a new creature and this old stuff has no place in my new life and I need to let it go and I need to confess to the church that I'm done with it because I need their help. I need my brothers and sisters praying for me. I need them to have my back. I need need them to support me in order to put this away once and for all. Or maybe today, you're still living in your before. Your before is your life, and you've never left it behind. You've never turned away from old and embraced new. You've never turned away from before and said yes to after. Let me tell you this morning, there's an after waiting, a glorious after. And you can leave behind who you were to become who you were made to be by God's grace. You can come this morning and say, yes, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Yes, I want to turn away from my sins. I want to be baptized so that those can be washed away. I want to live a new life. I want to be who I was made to be. And not who i've been and when you do what's in the past is in the past and it won't matter who you were what will matter is who you are who needs to come today why don't you do that while we stand and sing